koutou katoa. Welcome back to the Thinking Matters podcast. I'm Michelle Englehart. And I'm Rowan Locke. Today we have the privilege of speaking to theologian and Christian educator, Dr. Matthew Flanagan. Matthew is zooming in from Auckland and we're so grateful to have him join us. From an early age, Matthew deep dived into academics. He's well respected both here in Aotearoa, New Zealand and overseas because of his breadth of knowledge. The Old and New Testament that make up the Christian Bible continue to be misrepresented by skeptics and prominent atheists such as Richard Dawkins. Dawkins wrote this description of God in his book, The God Delusion. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic racist. Well, you get the picture. So we have invited Matthew in to set the record straight. <laughs> and I thought to some extent had their head in the sand. And then there was another community that was very, very cockshy, sure of themselves, um, which was the kind of academic community. And they often found that the emperor had no clothes. You know, it was like, we all hold this because all other sensible people hold this. And if you don't hold this, you're a moron. Um, but when you actually say, well, actually, what are the reasons? And, and how do you respond to this question? How do you respond to that question? Um, it was, wasn't, you know, and so that was, I guess, my journey. So through that, I really developed, I guess, my, my sort of theological, um, my sort of theological development became very interested in apologetics um, for much of my life because I still feel like I live in those two worlds. It's a very frustrating place to be. Frustrating with regard to, you know, for example, with the more Pentecostal type churches, it's very much about the experience rather than the in intellectual. Um, yeah, I, I find it, I find it hard to sit in the Pentecostal church now because of so uh, just the, the 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 baggage of the past. That, right. <laughs> that along with, you know? um, so I was, you know, they had home groups. They had Christian flatmates who lived to different flats. You know, they had home groups you'd meet a couple of times a week for a home group. You didn't go to church on Sunday. You'd go and play touch, and, and so it was very really, very really natural. Yeah. But what did happen? I was like, you got, I got to a point where several things happened. One is I couldn't listen to sermons because pastors always talk nonsense, you know. So they would quote things out of context. They would give self-help talks instead of talks that were actually rooted in what Scripture said. They'll pull the Bible up to to make it do a self-help talk. Um, they would often prove texts in ways that were appallingly bad, and they would give answers to questions which I thought were going to cause people problems if they explored those questions seriously. Um, and they were unable to address any of the questions. And when I began to push them on this, it was there was a kind of most closing ranks, like, don't you dare do this. Um, so I ended up in the end having to leave the church, that church and go to a different church later. It was just, you know, and, and old man's were like, who do you remember? I was like, you know, because, um, because, you know, just, just, just pure ignorance about, you know, like at one stage I was, re I was doing a religious studies paper and they were attacking a theologian called Calvin. So I got, Decided well, I'm not going to go and find this, so I went and read Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion and Cover to Cover, and it raised all these questions. And when I began asking, people started suggesting that I was denying truths, just crazy oh, wow. stuff like this, okay. you know, like you know, and you just realise these people just literally were were, were 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 ignorant. I don't mean to say that in a kind of denigrating way, but they were literally ignorant, and they just didn't understand what they were talking about. And you realised that you were in this, you just fell out with this community, right? I found a similar phenomenon when I attended Bible college. When I um, finished my master's degree in philosophy, I went to Bible college. I thought, well, I'm going to study theology and really get into this. And I found the same thing. I found, you know, you'd sit in a classroom and people weren't interested in, in arguing. 
which is really weird to me. So, you know, the, the lecturer would raise a question or an issue and the people in the class didn't want to address it. They were just pews. I don't know what to think. Um, and I would, I remember having a, I've been really shocked one time when they were having a discussion about the ordination of women. And someone raised an argument that I thought was a bad argument and I pointed it out. And it turned out that as a result of that, somebody complained to the, the college leadership and said that I hated women oh. and that I was, I shouldn't be allowed to mark papers because I would mark women lower than men because I thought women lacked intelligence. I'm at this stage, I just had my daughter born. Um, and I didn't even know about this and I found out about it. And this had gone all around the college and, and there'd been all this stuff going on in my training as a philosopher was when someone gives a bad argument, you point it out. You know, right. and that's what academic work is about. You know, you, you discuss ideas and you play devil's advocate and, you know, um, you know, and it, it, you know, and it wasn't indicative of, it wasn't necessarily indicative of, of, and I certainly had never said women were stupid or lacked intelligence or anything like that. I would never say anything like that. In fact, I think my daughter was probably more, more intelligent than I did. Um, but, um, yeah, it was just that kind of shocking thing, which you sort of felt like, my gosh, these people have sort of blacklisted me simply because I asked a theological question. It's really quite a, a really difficult. Um, and I've had similar things in, in Bible study groups. You know, people will say to me that they're intimidated and being in the same Bible study group. They don't want to be part of the Bible study group that I'm in because they're worried that if we get into discussion, they're going to look silly or something. And it's, it's quite a difficult, Yeah. you know, I'm not trying to be arrogant, but it's actually quite a difficult um, situation to be in because, you know, I've been a long period of time where I just couldn't stand sermons because I heard something bad. Um, and I would kind of know that they were bad. And I feel like, well, what am I supposed to say here? I think the teacher's not really teaching this responsibly to the yeah. entire community. And I'm sitting here and I, either I say that and I undermine his authority and I don't want to or I sit there and say nothing and have been And so it's been quite difficult in many ways having that kind of background. Well, I think that's why we kind of exist, is to try and connect people um, with the teaching that actually helps them um, be able to answer those questions or learn, you know, or to think critically the Bible. So for many of us, the God of the New Testament is easy to understand. He's full of when you first look in there. Very, very vengeful God, yeah. you know. Judgmental, ready to punish. Very Bart Simpson when he was impersonating God over a little radio to the neighbours where he says, do you want a loving God or do you want a vengeful God? And Old <laughs> Testament God definitely comes across a little bit more like uh, genocidal, you know. Yeah. So that's some of the questions that we'll be looking at today. So is God really a moral monster? Has he had this major personality change from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Did God become born again, you might ask? Yeah. So, so it's an interesting way, interesting way that question set up because mm. it sort of assumes that there's this radically different conception of God and they say the Old Testament and the New Testament. The start is in the New Testament is where you get the doctrine of hell. You don't get in the Old Testament, no. really. Um, so Jesus constantly talks about um, coming judgment, right? You get that, that him and hell is the Greek word Gehenna. It's an it's a apocalyptic symbol of final judgment, you know. But, you know, that, that warning of final judgment is in Jesus' teaching extensively. You know, the book of Revelation has some really quite chilling symbolism towards the end of it, say Revelation 19. Um, you get the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. Yes. Um, so, you know, this idea that the, the, the God, God presented in, in the New Testament isn't a God who judges people, I just find strange, you know, I, I think, you know. Um, 
many of the teachings Jesus appeals to that people like, such as, you know, love your neighbor and yourself, are quoting from the book of Leviticus. Yes. <laughs> you know, so when Jesus is asked, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart. He's just quoting the Shema, which any Jewish rabbi would say is the greatest commandment, you know. Um, he, you know, then the, the love your neighbor as yourself is like I said, it's from the book of Leviticus. Um, you know, and so, you know, and, and in fact, if you read the Old Testament, one of the most common as well, Testament is a story about a God who is faithful to his covenant when his people are not faithful to him. That is the essential theme of the Old Testament, you know. Um, God, you know, the, the, the theme of the Old Testament is to a large extent in Genesis, the, the, you know, human beings are behaving very badly. And God sets this long-term plan, um, you know, to bring about blessing to the nations and endures human stupidity and, you know, malice and craziness and, and what have you and stubbornness on the part of his people and you read the book of Judges and it's how they're completely off the rails all the time and they're never listening and the whole story very much is a story of a God who's, who's sort of patiently trying to hear accounts of judgment and that sort of thing in there but there's accounts of judgment in the New Testament yes. so I think there's a tendency for us to just not read the new and in light of the old you know, yes. I, I don't think much of the New Testament makes sense you know the whole concept of Messiah a son of David you know um, Paul's and all Paul's epistles are trying to explain to Jewish audiences or mixed Gentile Jewish audiences how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament and why he fulfills the promises they've been waiting for and what have you. So I just I just find that when people say that, I kind of wonder where they're yep. coming from. Because I think basically I, they don't understand either. Yep. The Old Testament. I think a lot not of it comes. Not meaning to do insult them, but I just yeah. I just find there's a kind of stereotype view mm-hmm. because I don't think yeah. I think it's a very selective. I think also people just don't read don't read their Bibles, and that's part of the problem. Um, if you if you read the Bible through, um, you start to see exactly what you're saying. But I think for most people, and the reason those sort of questions do come up with p- people, um, is obviously you've got the yeah. new atheists who sort of promote yeah, yeah. that quite vigorously, that sort of yeah, yeah, style yeah. Of, of difference between the Old and the New Testament God. Um, but also just the fact that, that a lot of Christians aren't reading their Bibles. They're not actually aware. Yeah, yeah. There's this kind of pacified view of Jesus that people get, you know, it was mm. kind of meek and mild, loving, caring people, yes, you know, never yes. made you know, judgments of anyone, and tolerated everybody. He's the he's, Jewish he's, guru. Yeah, yeah he's basically. The ultimate, you know, he's, he's the ultimate woke millennial sort of thing, you know. Um, and reality is, reality is, is that's not what you find in, in, no. in, in, in the New Testament. You know, the Jesus I read in the New Testament is actually quite rash and quite confronting and often says fairly strident things to people that, um, aren't very popular mm. and you know i think there's a passage that says you know judge not least you be judged which is probably the only passage in the bible means people know and they completely misread it you know jesus isn't talking about not making judgments because he proceeds to go on and you know, i don't judge anyone and neither should you because it's bad you know which is to make a judgment and so you get this kind of incoherent picture rather than one where jesus is actually saying look you know you're going to have to make moral standards you have to judge things but when you do you better live up to those judgments yourself and don't be nitpicky which is really what he's saying you think that you're more important than you are um you're wanting everybody to kind of pay attention to you when you're not really as important as you think you are. So, so, so whether God can even be arrogant is a question I would have in the first place. Well, I'm not sure that's a, I'm not sure that's a kind of moral category that could apply to God because God is the greatest possible being there is. So, how does the greatest possible being have an exalted judgment of himself? You know. Yeah. Um, so I don't think, but but I, I also do think that there's a question behind that, that God seems to be kind of self-absorbed, but I actually think that's not correct. I think much of the, the I mean, God didn't have to create us, right? No. Um, much of the, the Old Testament is about God having a covenant 
that's designed to reverse the curse that occurs in the Tower of Babel. So the story of Abraham in Genesis 12 follows on from um, the story of Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And the idea is the world has become a mess and God wants to fix this. So he calls, doesn't come and go bang and bring an army in or something. He calls this wandering shepherd in the desert and says, I've got this plan long term for your descendants to reverse this. And, you know, the whole story about God is about him trying to initiate this plan for the benefit of the human race. And yes, he requires loyalty to him and he requires people to trust him and he requires people to be committed to him and not to distractions and what have you. But the ultimate reason for that is because he wants to bring about this blessing to the human race, right? It's not because he's got some kind of self-absorbed ego trip that, you know, he's somehow low self-esteem or whatever like that. I mean, I just don't think that's an accurate picture of, of what's going on, you know. Um, a lot of these, the reference to God being jealous, that's usually in a context, if you look at that, the context of that is often, it's often presented in the, in the, in the analogy of marriage. So the idea is a man and a woman enter into a commitment with each other and it's a fundamental commitment to each other, and then one of them breaches this commitment, and the husband is, is legitimately aggrieved because this commitment has been breached, right? This commitment to care for each other and love each other and, and you know, help each other flourish has been broken, right? And so the, the, the image, I mean, firstly, the word jealous is an English word that's imposed upon a Hebrew word that has lots of other connotations. But the idea here is no, actually, God wants you to be committed to him. He doesn't want you to be committed to things that aren't actually committed to your flourishing, that aren't actually real, that aren't actually important. Um, what is important is you're committed to this kind of covenant he's made, which will bring about immortality, which will bring about your total flourishing, which will bring about the flourishing of the human race. And asking people to be committed to that is egocentric, right? <laughs> um, so I think that, that kind of context where you understand where those those ideas are put forward it's just, I think it's just a very superficial way of understanding. It's a very way of projecting onto God a kind of image of ourselves and thinking that, you know, that this would be problematic if we did it without sort of understanding the, the, the picture that's going on. So this is kind of like one of those little battles about the ideas of God. It's just like that the, the perception of the world has tried to impose something onto God. That's like, well, that's not, God gets to define who his character is, not a bunch of other people who've, you know, take, made a particular yeah. interpretation. Yeah, so, you know, so, for example, God being a jealous God, usually that phrase, and this is an English translation, but that's usually a, a phrase referred to idolatry, right? Now, understand that as sort of idolatry is understood in the Old Testament, God is actually the king. He is the vassal king of Israel. So, basically, at this time, nations will set up kings, and the mighty covenant will be a king, and the king will agree to certain kinds of obligations, and the citizens will agree to certain kinds of obligations. And if you then go and form a, a treaty with the, the enemy, so you've got a, a, a treaty with the Babylonians, and you go and form a treaty with the Egyptians who are the enemies, that's treason, right? What you're doing is you're playing both sides. You're, you're trying to make two people your king at the same time, and so you've got divided loyalty. Mm -hmm. And so what you're really doing is you're undermining the authority of one with the authority of another. And the Old Testament is framed on that kind of picture with God, right? So God is supposed to be the king that we are committed to. We obey his commands. We obey his laws. We devote our lives to um, his cause and service to him, right? Which is the cause of bringing justice and righteousness in the entire world, right? If you then say, okay, by the way, I get to make commitments that are contradictory to that, and I also get to just decide the terms unilaterally of that commitment however I feel like it when it suits me, um, it's, you know, 
but that's not a problematic, that's not a moral virtue on God's part to say that's unreasonable, right? It's, you know, that's, that's a form of kind of treason against the king. It's to not be committed to ultimately justice in the world. It's to, you know, abrogate to yourself the right to sort of determine those things. There's a kind of, there's actually an arrogance in not. So a lot of that, a lot of that Old Testament stuff, where it's very much you are set apart. When he's talking to the Jewish people, he says you are set apart. You are different. I don't want mixture. That's really what he's getting at. That that it's like it's like well, if you're loyal to me as your king, and even in Deuteronomy he says you're probably going to get a king, but remember I'm the king, um, essentially. Mm. And and so yeah, the king the, is a concession, right? Yeah, the, the king, the king you're you're going to get a king because you're going to want what everyone else has got, but actually That's I'm right. the king. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you just want an earthly representative, but uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm the king. And so loyalty to anybody else or to any other idols is, is yeah. But see, in the New Testament, you say that because Jesus is the king, right? Jesus is the actual king that God appoints, right? Jesus yeah. is the David king that God appoints, right? So, so... You know, if you if you take a metaphor of the kingdom of God seriously and don't think it's a metaphor, which I don't, you know, it's, it's a yeah. really kingdom, right? Yes. The idea that, you know, this is somehow a jealous thing and we should be able to just, you know, just, I mean, imagine if we applied that to any other political situation. You know, I just don't like the laws of New Zealand, so mm-hmm. well, I just get to choose to just, just disagree with what Parliament says on this and I decide to just redefine it however I like. And if the Parliament says to me, you know, Matt, that's not really reasonable. I say, well, like you're arrogant. How dare you? you know? <laughs> Arguably, we do do that anyway. But but it's actually when you actually think about it, you actually think about it. It's actually really quite silly, isn't it? I mean, if, yeah. you, if, you, if you set up the assumptions that govern the narrative, and this is the king of the universe, none of it makes sense. It only makes sense if you kind of if you kind of approach it on on your own terms. But then you're not really objecting to what the Bible says; you're objecting to the construction you've made of it. Right? Yeah, definitely. So um, just going back to the list of questions that a lot of people do have with regard to the Old Testament God, was God really guilty of ethnic cleansing? Well, so for starters, you've got to ask yourself what those words like ethnic cleansing and mm-hmm. what have you mean. Those are modern legal terms that are used in, in, in certain legal contexts. Um, certainly in the Bible, there is accounts of God commanding, um, driving out and killing people in the current Land, right, and that's largely because of it's largely because of certain religious practices they have in the text, and some of those texts, those are things like human sacrifice. Um, you know, they they involve commitments to all kinds of abhorrent things, and so in the text, a certain number of people are commanded to be driven out and killed in virtue of the fact that they they, they engage in those practices. And the, the the context here is not just that they engage in those practices, but that they've been engaging in them for hundred years. Mm without repentance um, and it's reached a sort of level where it's pervasive in the community and Israel are coming into this community they simply can't live culturally in this in this community without being assimilated into that into that group right so there's a context and this is an occasional command it's not the general norm God doesn't say this is how you normally behave it's kind of like a special command for a special situation you know so there, if there's a moral problem there in the sense that it, it commands killing in a context we normally wouldn't support commanding killing but I don't think it's accurate to Imposed upon that problem ideas of genocide or ethnic cleansing or what have you, which are very different. You know, they're they they a kind of killing which we identify in the modern period, which is often based on a kind of racial hatred and desire to eliminate an entire race from the face of the earth, right? Um, often on racial grounds um, and things like that, you know. So sometimes I'll say to people, you know, like, 
some people will say, well, look, it's, it's ethnic cleansing because, you know, you're, you're, you're fighting people because of a religion. And my response to that is to say, well, that would mean they're fighting the Taliban because of ethnic cleansing, right? Because the Taliban is a religious group we're opposed to the idea, so we're trying to fight and kill people or members of the Taliban, right? Um, now, obviously, there's a moral problem there in that this is indiscriminate killing. It applies to combatants and non-combatants, and normally that is something we wouldn't do. And I think there is a, an important moral problem to wrestle with there. But I wouldn't approach the moral problem by imposing upon it the rhetoric of genocide or ethnic cleansing, which brings in a whole lot of other nuances which are not necessarily in the text. Right? So I think you first have to say this isn't really um, wholesale genocide um, or wholesale ethnic cleansing when you understand what's going on in the text. Um, but there is a moral problem, but let's not let's not exaggerate or let's not make it a moral problem that's, yeah. that's different. Right? Um, the other thing, as I say in my book, is a lot of the language about this is actually hyperbolic. So mm. ancient Near Eastern, yes. ancient Near Eastern writers, when they describe warfare, tend to describe it in, in grandiose terms of we killed everybody, we wiped them out, we knocked them off the face of the earth. Yes, um, and they don't actually literally mean that, you know. So if you look at ancient Near Eastern war accounts by Assyrians or the Egyptians or um, the Hittites or the sort of thing, this is pervasive, you know. We do that now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, I was just saying, well, yeah, we're reading some of the Old Testament scripture and they're like, they absolutely decimated them. They were completely destroyed. And it was like, they lost 120 men. And you're like, oh, I mean, <laughs> yeah. granted, that's actually, 120 actually, lives, but it's like, but well, that's not. Actually, yeah, it's actually, it's actually deep. And if you read, read Joshua, there's two chapters in Joshua, I think it's 10 and 11, where it repeatedly says they went to the city and they wiped them all out. They went to the city, they wiped them all out, because one after the other, almost rhythmic. Mm. And then the next two chapters talks about how the land's full of these people and they, they struggle to, to derive them out of the next, you know, period of time. Yes. And then the book of Judges opens with the, the land full of these people. So, so you know, skirmishes, um, where, and I mean, let's, be, let's be frank, skirmishes where men, women, and children probably died in, um, are described in these grandiose terms. So there's killing, and it's indiscriminate, but it's certainly not at the scale that you might think it is if you just read those passages in isolation and don't take into account the, the kind of hyperbolic genre. Yeah. And it's... Certainly not, I don't think it's the kind of genocidal this killing that people would condemn in, say, Bosnia, which is based on the, on, based on the, I mean, to, to be, to, to be genocidal in that legal sense, it's based on the idea that your goal is not just to kill a group of people, but your goal is to wipe out that genetic group, right? Your goal is right. to wipe out that kind of racial, racial or ethnic group from existence, and that's the purpose of your, of your attack, right? So that's why it's called genocide, right? So, so, so genocide is a kind of killing which is motivated by the desire to eliminate a racial group or an ethnic group from existence yeah. um, by physical killing, right? So if you're a missionary and you're going into a community and you think there's certain kinds of practices like, you know, maybe widow burning that you think are ethnic practices which are problematic and you persuade people to give that up and as a result you get rid of a culture or an ethnic group through persuasion, that's not genocide even though it's eliminating an ethnic group from from. So it has to be, you want to kill this group of people to physically wipe out an ethnic or racial group. And I don't think that's what's going on in, in, in the Old Testament. Certainly there's a moral problem of indiscriminate killing, but it's not the problem of, you know, genocide or ethnic cleansing. It's probably more the problem that you get in the ethics of war about non-combatant immunity and under what circumstances can you kill non-combatants, can you kill non-combatants at all. Yeah, they didn't exactly have the Geneva Convention signed yet, did they? Uh, three thousand to four thousand years ago, when <laughs> no. they were going. Well, there's, going. Actually, there's, there's actually a passage in Deuteronomy where something like that mm. is put forward. So there's a passage in Deuteronomy twenty, I think it is, it's twenty twenty one. I can't remember off the top of my head, where it gives them um, rules about going to war, and it talks about when you when you besiege a city, you know, you 
kill all the men, but you don't kill the women and children, right? Which is would be an early form of that kind of yes. war convention. Um, and that says, except in these cities, right? And refers to the Canaanite cities, right? So the point about that is that this is an exception to a normal rule, right? So the idea is this is something you should normally not do. There's this really strong presumption against this. In this one case, um, he's an exception to this presumption. Now, that raises all kinds of moral questions, but notice what the question is. The question is, why is the ethic of non-combatant immunity not absolutely absolute so it applies to every single period of history? It's not the question of, is it generally wrong to do that? Right? Um, it's, it's, so it's a moral question that, that contemporary ethicists have war debate about non-combatant immunity. So I read secular ethicists all the time who debate whether you know, there are situations in which non-combatant immunity can be suspended. Now, I'm inclined to think there aren't, in, you know, absent some kind of divine revelation or something. But, but this is an open question in the ethics of war, right? You read books. I read books all the time by people who sort of say, well, what happens in a you know, really extreme circumstance, you know, where, you know, Hitler's, Hitler's conquered Europe and, and it looks like it's the, the only way to beat, the only way you can defeat the Nazis is by aerial bombing German cities for civilians. And you think that's the only way you can possibly stop the Nazis from um, winning World War Two? Yeah, and well, I mean, there was an atomic bomb yeah, instance at uh, Hiroshima. Sure. I mean, it was just like, well, that's Correct. one so, massive so carpet the, bomb, you know, and it just yeah. completely I mean, wiped out Yeah, so I, I, I oppose these decisions, by the way. I oppose these decisions in World War II to do this, which they did. Um, they, they fired on the entire German cities and incinerated hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children deliberately. In fact, they engaged in terror bomb. Um, you know, and I oppose the, the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima. But the irony here is that these are open questions in secular ethics, right? So, so what I think you see in the Bible is this principle that you don't kill non-combatants, and only in really extreme circumstances, so extreme that you need some kind of divine revelation before you can do it, is justified. Um, and that's held by critics to be counterintuitive. Um, but it's certainly, and I mean, I, I feel the tension, but it's certainly nowhere near as counterintuitive as, as some of the things I read in the secular ethics of war today, where people are saying you can drop atomic bombs on cities, or you can, you know, engage in certain kinds of collateral damage, um, et cetera, et cetera, and so on. So, you know, this is a, the, the, the moral question is more nuanced here. There is a moral question, but the moral question is one that certainly is subject to much more substantive dispute than, than people suggested. Very I good hope point. That's clear. Yeah, very. That was great. Um, so just, I'll just check in. Sorry. Just checking the time. Can you cut that bit out? Well, <laughs> yeah, take two. Take two. <laughs> Check of so, the time. Um, just back to some of the um, sort of ideas that obviously atheists seem to be looking at the Old Testament and drawing stuff out without the context, as we've said earlier. Um, and as a woman um, in the 21st century, looking back at the, at the Old Testament times, life obviously seemed really, really harsh for women in the ancient Near East. Can we find God's heart for women in the Old Testament? Oh, I, 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 I think so, absolutely. Because I think, yeah. I think sometimes you have to understand what's going on in the, in the cultural context, what's being talked about. Part of the problem with a lot of this is a kind of you know, inability to really read a text sympathetically. Um, so I teach my students when they want to criticise a position, they first have to articulate clearly what the person they disagree with thinks. You know, that's something I draw into my students in the class all the time. And... You know, you've got to understand this is a, these are commandments given to people in a particular cultural context where there's certain kinds of things going on, certain kinds of social problems. And so it's not always apparent to us um, what's going on. So a good example of this is, you know, a lot of what I read in the Old Testament is designed to protect widows, for example. Yes. It's designed to protect women and children. 
So, for example, if a man, um, for example, if a man seduces a woman, he has to marry her. Why? Well, because understanding this culture, they don't have a domestic purpose. Is being <laughs> if, so, if a man wants to have sexual intercourse with a woman, he has to agree to go to her father and give a collateral and, and money, so that if he then wanders off and leaves her, and she's as a result, you know, got children or she's been in this relationship and she's committed her life to this relationship and now economically there's no one providing for her and she's got to look after kids and the man's not there to, who, who does the work in the field and what have you to provide for her, she doesn't start to get, right? Yeah. So there's actually really quite strict rules around a lot of this sort of thing um, precisely because of that sort of situation, right? So the idea is, look, if a man produces a woman, he must pay a bride price and tell us, oh my gosh, he's treating a woman like chattel or property. Actually, he's not what he's doing is he's putting up financial collateral to protect women from men who think, hey, that woman, she's pretty hot, I'll sleep with her, and then wander off and leave her with the, the economic consequences, right? Yeah. So it's, it's yeah. really putting that sort of thing at the forefront, you know, um, you know that sort of thing. If you look at the um, the rules around adultery, they often actually aim as much at men as they are women, you know. Um, you know, that sort of, and that's, you know, that sort of, and that's, you know, again, that's a situation where people are violating this, covenant which actually is a social welfare covenant or it's a situation where children come into existence and are provided and cared for and then when the children grow up they care for the elders right the commandment you know you should honor your mother and father isn't just you know you know don't disagree with them when they tell you not to go out at 10 o'clock at night like that, right? <laughs> it's actually a rule about you know those, those, those parents are going to get old and they're going to get their health's going to fade and their strength's going to fade and if there's not somebody around to provide them they're going to die and so, as a result, there's very strict rules around, you know, not, you know, about respecting your parents. What's going on there is not, oh, don't, don't give your parents, don't diss your parents, you know, and call them your olds or something like that. But what they're saying is, you know, this is a situation where these people are going to grow old, they're going to be cared for, and they need to be looked after, and the healthcare is going to need to be met. And so there's this unit, this institution there in the, in, in the Old Testament where, you know, um, children are brought into existence in a certain kind of context. Um, where they'll be cared for, where they'll be educated, where they'll be brought up and protected, and they're not going to be harmed financially. And then when those children grow up, they... Sorry, Matt, we completely lost you. ...they reciprocate that and care for their parents, right? And violating that institution on different people ends up a situation where children are born into communities where um, they're not looked after. Now, in the ancient world, when children are brought into communities they're not looked after, what usually happens is they die. Mm. Yes. You know, so so and, and other cultures like Roman and Greek yes. culture, which didn't have this effect, they solved it by killing everyone that's in the womb. You know. So people would, you know, they were much more promiscuous cultures, but what would happen is when, when children were born and the parents didn't look up, couldn't look after them, they just kill them. You know, mm. and, and in some ways the Hebrew um, the Hebrew ethic is different than that it repudiates this. So I think when you actually take some of these things into into mm. There's actually a really interesting story in the, in the book of Genesis, which I always kind of find it funny, which is along these lines, which, you know, shows the different kind of attitude towards some of this that ancient people had to modern people. And that's the story of, I think it's Dinah in the Old Testament. Um, and I, can't remember, I think it's the name, I can't remember. But anyway, the situation is a guy decides that he wants to um, sleep with one of the daughters of, 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 of the patriarchs. So he basically goes out and just, just just grabs her and, 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 and you know takes her and has sex with her and doesn't come to the father and doesn't pay this money and what have you. So the um the 
there's brothers are so outraged that they treat their daughter like a prostitute. Their sister, sister like a prostitute. That they get these men to circumcise themselves. And then when these men circumcise themselves in the bleeding, they go and kill them. Right? Now, the story is kind of funny. You actually, actually, in that, in that context, he makes these men cut their lips and then kills them all because they dare treat their daughter like a prostitute. Now, the, 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 um, the story is not endorsing their behavior. In fact, they get rebuked in the story for doing it. But it shows this mindset. How dare you treat our, you know, our, our sister like a prostitute? How dare you think that you can just enter into a relationship with her and not make a commitment and not? put down money to care for her and put her in a situation where she's at risk. We're so outraged at this that we're going to go and kill you. know? Yeah. Um, and that seems bizarre to us, but you actually reflect on it. There's a different sort of side to this. They're actually taking very seriously this idea of, you know, their daughter's welfare and, and, and the possibility that she could get pregnant and this guy doesn't appear to be willing to make a, a serious commitment or to, to put up security or to, you know, take the, the care he needs or take seriously the commitment. And they're outraged by this. This is something they've got to war. It's like yeah. horrifying. In fact, the book of Judges ends with a situation where a man's um, wife or concubine is raped, and the Israelite community is so outraged by it, they have a genocidal war with each other. And the book of Judges ends with this story, right? And, and the point of the book of Judges is to say, look how terrible Israel is. They had no king and it was lawless. The point of the story is to talk about how awful the situation is. But it illustrates how awful it is by saying these people raped a woman. You know, they raped a woman, they killed her. That's the epitome of the denigration of this nation. And it's so outrageous that people in this culture would be willing to genocide one another over it. How many rapes are there in Auckland yesterday? You know, and we don't see people running around going, oh my God, it's terrible, let's kill each other, we're so outraged, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we don't think, oh, that's an epitome that Auckland is such an absolutely depraved place. We think, oh, it's just like, yeah. Right? Well, I had um, someone that's not from Auckland. Yeah, we just assume that's what it's like, just uh, denigrated. <laughs> no. Um, I, yeah, right? I guess because it really speaks to the time of like the, I suppose, the sexual vulnerability of women is what it's more getting at. It's just like the co- the consequences for sex today are very small in terms of like there can be things that you can do. You know, there's abortion, there's, you know, people are on the pill, condoms exist, you know, like so there's actually less consequence. And then also yeah. even if, even if you do get pregnant and decide to have a baby, then there'll be government support social. and social yeah, support see, to be able to help you. But none of that existed 3,000 yeah, years okay. ago when the but laws they, were they written. Did it. It, did, it did exist, but it existed in institutions like family and... Yeah, about, right? yeah so exactly. Straight, straight institutions yeah. of family. Yeah, so their institution for dealing with domestic purpose benefit was having men pay a certain amount of money to the, to the woman, right? Yeah. Um, their dealing with retirement issues was ensuring that there was a family unit that cared for elderly people when they were sick, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, those, those sorts of social problems are dealt with that way. And, of course, I would say, I, I think we do face these consequences today, but we hide them with political decisions. Yeah, we can hide the consequences a lot more. Yeah. So, so as ancient Greece, people would, eat, would kill children when they were born. We, we performed abortion. And, and Before they were born. Yeah. Now, I can't remember last time I checked the figures, it was about 20,000 or something. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, you know, so we, we just we just kill the children. That's how we solve them. But we look quietly in a, in, a, in a hospital somewhere, and and we say we're progressive people, not just justify it. Yeah. I'm not just barbarians in the Old Testament making them pay for it. How dare you do that? Just do a job. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because yeah, because children aren't worth any amount of money. Yeah, <laughs> we, we have we have a burgeoning problem in New Zealand with domestic purposes being. which started off as something in the, the 30s that helped women in difficult situations. It's become absolute economic. Massive 
problem, you know, and all kinds of social problems down track with that. But, you know, where kids are in single parent families, where women are struggling because they're having to look after kids that they can't look after, you know. Um, and my wife's in family law, and, and the number of stories she deals with, which starts like this, we went to a pub and had a little bit of drink, you know, and now she's got this absolute disaster, family violence, mm. you know, this dysfunctional situation of two people who hate each other's guts and they've got kids and they're just destroying each other's lives and they're destroying the children. And she'll tell you that almost every story starts with a little part and this cute guy and, you know. So we do face those consequences. We do them, deal with them in different ways and we tolerate them in different ways. What you've got in the Old Testament is an institutional structure that's set up to deal with these kinds of social problems. Um, in a context where you've got an agrarian society which they don't have huge amounts of economic resources to throw at big state institutions to no, save these No, one person um, can make enough food for about 1.2 people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, these are semi-nomadic societies. In fact, in the early, if you read the early strata of the Old Testament law, there's not really even a, a you know, justice is by and large the tribal elder goes out and, and someone's attacked his tribe and he goes out and defends his tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not even a judicial system. That's why they have to create cities of refuge. So, that, you know, when, when, when tribal wars happen, people can run to the city of refuge and, and get a judge to hear the case, right? So you're dealing with a, a very law, very lawless society in which you've got serious social problems, which generally affect men, affect women and children who are very vulnerable. Orphans and widows are, are, are in, the, in the Bible, singled out as, as a vulnerable group. And, and, so, and also immigrants. Um, so institutions are put in place and they're fairly strict about these institutions. At least in the laws they're strict. In, in practice, they're probably more flexible. We know that in ancient Greece in law, right? So, so paradigmatic legal cases are often sort of the extreme paradigm. Um, but, you know, they're actually about... So if you read the autism carefully, you actually ask them what the values they're embedded in these institutions are. And what's the author... What's the value system they're trying to reinforce here? What's the social problem he's trying to fix? You actually find a lot of really, I think, quite humanitarian stuff in the Old Testament. Yes. Um, stuff that's very, very um, radical and very, very, you know, affirming of the vulnerability of these people. But we miss it because we read it with the wrong kind of cultural lens at times. Yes, that's true. And it's the same with the slavery as well. There's there's so much that's been, that's in there yeah. that just shows the humanity of God as right. well, so, you know, so towards people. We've got, yeah. You've got to read the slavery issue against the context, right? So mm. we're, reading it, we're reading it from a community that abolished slavery it was certainly in the British Empire, it was only abolished a couple of hundred years ago. Mm, 200 um, years. You know, um, it was abolished in Europe thousands of years ago, but within the British Empire, the colonies, right? Um, you know, and so we read it from a perspective where there's no slaves at all, right? And, and But in the ancient Near East, you've got a perspective where slavery is a part of the economic situation. People sell themselves into slavery to, to escape poverty yes. and death. Yeah. You know, so, so, you know, your crops fail and you can't feed your family and so you need to borrow money from someone who's wealthy. And he says, well, why should I give you my money? And you say, well, I work for you for free, right? Yeah. And large numbers of people do this to survive. You know, if they, if, they, if they don't do this, they die. They starve to death. They can starve to death, right? Yeah. So they're very vulnerable people who are in, in desperate need and they'll do desperate things to get out of this. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a widespread practice. So what, once you understand that's the context, yeah. what do you see in the Old Testament? You actually say, well, look, um, let's put in place these institutions to try and prevent people from falling into debt. So you can't charge interest, and yes. you must cancel loans after a certain period of time. Yes, and you must leave a certain amount of food on the side of your farm for people when they need it. And then the next thing is, well, a lot of people are in the situation. Well, here's the laws about how to get them out of it. 
you know. <laughs> yeah. After seven yeah. years, you have to release them, right? And if you beat them, you have to let them out immediately, right? And if somebody runs away from an aggressive master, you provide refuge for them and look after them, right? And then, oh, when they do get out, here's the institutions you put in place to make sure they don't get back into it. Now, it seems to me, once you understand that, it seems really bizarre to say, oh, look, they're pro-slavery. Yes. They're doing everything they can to try and prevent people falling into it. They're doing everything they can to get people out of it, you know, in a reasonable length of time. They're doing putting in place laws to protect people in it from exploitation. You don't normally do that with things that you support, right? Here's <laughs> a really good thing. Let's try and get people out of it. Let's try and make sure that this minimises much. You know, what you've got is a social evil that exists in that society, and this isn't a you know a, a sophisticated. This is a very nomadic society, and it's certainly the early part of the Old Testament. Um, and these are laws designed to try and get people out of this institution, to try and try to make this institution as humane as possible, to try and help these people out of this economic problem in a situation where it worked. You know, it's, they survive, so they borrow this money, they go into debt, and after seven years they're out. They can feed this their family. They're provided the, the person who put them in. Who, you know, who put them into this into the servitude has to pay this huge amount of money for them so that they can set up this institution set aside so that every seven years when these people come out, they can provide themselves for a year. You know, um, there's all these laws put in place to prevent them falling into debt. The whole thing is designed to protect people from this pervasive yes. social problem. Um, you know, and it, there can be a kind of naivety that Westerners think that we can go into other cultures very different yes. way, and just come in and pass Western laws and as a result, overnight will fix things, you know, and, and, and that doesn't actually always, you know, I and mean, when we abolished slavery in the British Empire, they had to do it, you know, the, at times they had to do that gradually. They had to reimburse huge numbers of people who relied on their economics of slavery. You know, you, you ban slavery and the entire economy can collapse, you know, unless you replace it with certain kinds of institutions. And when the economy collapses, that can create all kinds of evils and death and suffering as well, right? particularly in an agrarian subsistence economy, right? So when you approach evils, it's not simply to say there's an evil, it's coming, bang, pass the law, no more evil. You know, sometimes you have to, we know this politically, be very, very realistic. And God doesn't come into Israel with this kind of, create this kind of utopian heaven on earth. Mm. He comes to a real society and says, here's some real earthly political institutions where you have to work through these problems the way these problems are worked through in any other society. Um, and... I'm going to give you some laws and some, you know, prophetic advice on how to work through these problems and how to solve these problems. And then that wisdom is embodied in the Old Testament. We can look at it and say, well, look, we can get the wisdom, the wisdom, we can get the principle here, and we can learn from it and maybe apply it in ways that are quite different um, given our social context. But the wisdom is there. You read those texts, and those texts have inspired yeah. um, abolition of slavery throughout history. I mean, it's largely Christian cultures where slavery was abolished, you know. Mm. In Saudi Arabia, slavery was only abolished about this century. You know, um, you know. So it, these are these are these are when they've been read by people have inspired all kinds of you know opposition to slavery and, and what have you. And so pervasive, you know, the kind of wisdom that's in here is basically telling people how to deal with this social problem. You know? Yeah, you could argue that it, that it worked because that that gradual putting in those structures, putting in those laws. It, it worked like it's gotten to the place where all of the Jew yeah. I mean even by Jesus time having a slave was not common like Jews didn't want to have other sla no. Jews as slaves like and that was that was still going back 2,000 years ago and Christians certainly didn't want to have too many yeah, slaves so, so slavery was abolished in England around 1000 AD right um, 
you know, they, I think it was the Council of London or something like that. Um, you know, but by that stage of the by and large, it was about Viking raids and you know, slavery had kind of abolished as a you know, as a large, large as, as a kind of mainstream mainstream institution. But you know, but that, that again too, there was a there was a radical economic shift in society. You know, from to a feudalist society that occurred in the Middle Ages from the society that existed before. Let me give you an example to motivate this. I heard this story, I don't know how accurate it is, it's a kind of a profitable story, but it illustrates the point of, you know, someone who went into a third world country and he heard about this company that had child labor and he's horrified, you know, this company has child labor. And so what he does is he goes in and he says, right, what we're going to do is we're not going to do any more business in this area because we think child labor is a terrible thing. So they don't do any more business, and the business closes, and the children start death, and the family dies. Yeah, <laughs> you know, because those those kids were in those businesses because their families were desperate and needed money. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Now, you can say, well, look, we've abolished child labour, yeah, and you just killed all the children, right? Now, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, you may as so, well so, just kills all the children, right? So yeah. that's not to say that child labour is a good thing, but it's just that's a naive way of solving the problem, right? What you want to do is go and change institutions and create a situation where these people are able to provide themselves economically and what have yeah. you. Um, Place the alternatives yeah. and what have you, and then you abolish child labour. And if yes. you read the Old Testament, that's largely what's going on. There's different laws at different points in time in the Pentateuch about slavery. They're not the same laws at different points in time, and they're dealing with a social problem. Yeah. I think that's time you're saying, Michelle. Right? Yes, it was. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> I just, yeah, we, we, we do want to wrap up a little bit. Thank you so much for um, all that um, context and history that no you've problem. shared with us because I think that's going to be really helpful. This could have been a three hour podcast, yeah, frankly. I, know, I was yeah. like, oh, been, I felt yeah. like we were only just scratching the surface we and I was like, to oh. Have this... another one as well. Um, but before you go, I, we just always ask a couple of little questions. Um, is there a book that you're reading at the moment that you would recommend to anyone? No, I'm reading at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> what I'm reading at the moment is really controversial. It's actually Bill Craig's Quest for the Historical Ah, uh, yes, yes. And it's actually a great book. I actually really enjoy it. But what yeah. I really enjoy about it, though, is that it, it's one of the few books where people try and take the context of, say, the book of Genesis seriously. Mm. And, you know, he, one of the things Craig doesn't do, which I appreciate, but it does create a whole lot of issues, is he's sort of aware of the contextual issues of, of, of say, the early Old Testament. Yes. And he's aware of the kinds of, he's, he's aware of the kinds of, um, challenges and problems that it, it raises for modern people and he's coming up with a solution that takes into account all the data in a way that's responsible um, but of course it, 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 it's, it sets a lot of people off because it means that you don't end up reading Genesis the way say modern yes. people want to read it about origins you know with, with where we focus on the way we can get inside it and whatever but it's actually the same problem that he's addressing that we're yep. talking about with, with the yep. Old Testament where people are reading the Old Testament from a cultural standpoint of, of 21st century people and not appreciate what necessarily is going on in the cultural context they were living. So, yeah, yeah it's a good book, but I'll probably yeah. get in trouble. That's okay. The Quest for the Historical Adam, I was actually listening to Bill Craig's podcast on yeah. that very topic as I was coming to work today. So, yeah, it is causing a little bit of contra controversy yeah, out there. Uh, yeah. But um, thank you for that. We'll put that in the show notes for anyone that's actually interested. Yeah. Um, and do you have any final words you want to share with anyone today? Ah. Just... Read your Old Testament. Just read the Bible. Yeah, read the Bible. Well, just know, read, read, read. I mean, I, I'm a big believer in the motto of, of Augustine the Pippo, which is faith seeking understanding, right? So faith is a commitment. You don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not into liberal scholarship where you just sort of throw your commitments out to be to fit academic um, trends. But I think you also need to be intellectually responsible with your faith commitments, right? So Augustine said it's that faith seeking understanding. We believe in order to understand. 
So, you know, you, you have your Christian faith, you, you gain information from revelation from God, um, but then you have to work out what the implications of that is and how that fits with other things you believe in and what that means for your life. And that can require you to do a, a fair bit of thinking. And I'm a big believer in that, that you know, certainly um, people with my kind of academic training, my kind of background, have a real responsibility to do that responsibly and not be blasé about it or, or you know, yeah. dismissive about it or, or, to, or to, to not take it seriously. So, you know, if, if you're that way inclined, I, I, I would commend you to, to take that seriously. You know, engage in faith seeking and Take the Old Testament seriously, but endeavour to understand it and understand what's going on and really wrestle with this message. Because if you don't do that, you won't actually get what it brings to people's lives if you just brush over it. Yeah. Thank you so Sorry. much. Um, yeah. I'm, I'll put a link to your blog um, in our show notes as well, actually, because you do have a, a website with your wife. Oh, m m m m So that, yeah. that is really worth people checking out. So we'll pop that in there as well. Um, thank you so much for spending time with us. It's been great. No problem. Yeah. Okay, looking excellent. forward to having you actually here in the studio. Yeah. 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 One of these when days. They, <laughs> when they open the border between Auckland and Tarong, right? Thank you so yeah. much. Bless Thanks so you. much. Bless you. Thinking Matters is a donor-supported organisation, so if you've enjoyed this podcast today and want to see even more, please consider supporting the ministry at support.thinkingmatters.org.nz. And while you're there, you can also check out our other resources and upcoming events.
Thinking Matters is a donor-supported organization, so if you've enjoyed this podcast today and want to see even more, please consider supporting the ministry at support.thinkingmatters.org.nz. And while you're there, you can also check out our other resources and upcoming events. Thank <laughs> you.